Uh, good morning. Uh, welcome to Alathea Church. My name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here. Glad to have you. Uh, parents of elementary school age kids, if you want to go ahead and dismiss your kids to this time uh, to Alathea Junior, uh, they'll be their teachers will be back at the back uh, doors waiting for them, ready to take them off to their uh, classroom lesson time. Uh, if this is your first time with us, uh, welcome. Uh, uh, go ahead and turn over to Judges chapter 10. That's where we're going to start this morning. Uh, we have a free gift for you if you'd like one. Uh, we give out scripture journals here. Uh, we love God's word here. We believe that it's powerful. And that's just our gift to you as a way to take notes if something uh, kind of catches your attention uh, during the sermon or whatever else. So if you'd like one, just raise your hand. We're just going to give that to you. Uh, and you can keep that with you and bring it back if you come back in future weeks. But we would love for you uh, to have that this morning. So, uh, all right. I am attempting to cover nearly two and a half chapters of scripture this morning, uh, so we have zero time to fool around, which is me yelling at myself to not fool around because obviously you have no role in any of that. Um, so just a reminder to you guys uh, who regularly attend, we release... Uh, uh, during the week on our group me and on social media, what scripture we're going to be covering for the upcoming week. Uh, as we get further into Judges, there's going to be more and more chapters that we're covering. And I would highly recommend uh, that you uh, read the passage uh, that we're going to be covering in the sermon before you come. Uh, it'll allow you to have an idea of what is going on because uh, there will be huge sections of the text that I'm just going to kind of summarize. Uh, and so if you're unfamiliar with the story, you might be like, what is he talking about? Uh, uh, and and it also, if you read it ahead of time, it, 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 I, I believe that's going to allow you um, to have something stirring up in your own heart before you ever even come and we hear the word of God preached. Uh, so I would encourage you to do that. If you're not in the church's group me and you want to be, uh, just stop by the welcome desk on your way out this morning and we'll make sure we get you added to that. Uh, we, we do announcements in there. People share needs, uh, prayer requests, and, um, and other things around the church, just the way we kind of uh, keep tabs on one another and communicate through throughout the week. So uh, last week I preached through the story of uh, Abimelech and Abimelech was Gideon's son and uh, not a good dude. Uh, wanted to consolidate power after the death of his father. Uh, Gideon had denied the kingship uh, over Israel, but also kind of took it at the same time uh, in a really kind of strange way. And so once Gideon had died, there was kind of this leadership vacuum inside of Israel uh, amongst him and his sons. And so Abimelech, his son, goes to the leaders of this uh, region of Israel called Shechem and, and says to them, hey, uh, why would you want 70 uh, leaders when you could just have me? And they say, yeah, sure. And then he kills his brothers. Um, and he ends up being a bad king. Uh, the leaders of Shechem decide, we don't really like this guy. Let's rebel. And he murders them as well. And then in his rage, he attacks another city uh, that was rebelling against him. And they kill him. And <laughs> kind of like, you know, your stereotypical Hallmark story, right? Um, and you know, the issue that we saw as we looked at that section of the book of Judges last week was that Israel once again had stopped serving the Lord. There was this vacuum of leadership inside of Israel. And because they'd stopped serving the Lord, they stopped worshiping God and instead worshiped the gods of the culture around them. And what inevitably happens consistently inside of the book of Judges is every time the people turn away from God, um, trouble follows. And there's some reasons for that practically, and we've talked about that, but I just want to hit on, on this again. In, 
In the case of Israel, you have to remember kind of where they were at culturally and contextually as a people. And whenever they walked away from God, not only had God warned them that it would not go well for them if they did so, but oftentimes what they're doing is an attempt to replace what God was for them with something else that could never provide. So, for example, last week in our story of Abimelech, they're they're looking for the leadership and protection and safety that God God has promised them. And once they've left kind of the the protection of God and and sitting underneath God's leadership, worshiping him, following him, obeying him, what ends up happening is they run after these other things and they realize that there's this anxiety growing and welling up inside of them because they've turned away from the the, the shade of protection, so to speak, to use the language that God would use in the Old Testament, and they start running to other things, including bad leaders, because at least there's a promise of some level of protection protection, and safety underneath a terrible guy like Abimelech. And so you have the end of this, 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 this time period where Abimelech is dead. The nation has just gone through extreme turmoil. There's a, there's a ton of dead people. There's borderline civil war going on inside amongst the tribes of Israel. And when you get to chapter 10, The author of Judges just kind of gives us a quick snapshot of two quick kings who take over relatively quickly. Uh, In verses 1 through 5, the first one is a guy by the name of Tola, and it says that he judged for 23 years and had really, in many ways, it uses the word saved Israel from Abimelech. And what it meant by that is the, the, the disaster that Abimelech had brought with him to the nation, he moved in and kind of restructured the systems in the nation in such a way that they experienced at least some stability, which is something that they had not experienced during the three years of Abimelech's reign. So he was a fairly good judge from what we can tell. And then the next judge that's mentioned is a guy by the name of Jair. And Jair was a Gileadite who was a descendant from Manasseh. So he's from the tribe of Manasseh. And he judged Israel for 22 years. He died, which brings us to the text that Charlotte read for us this morning, which is not surprisingly, as we've seen, Over and over again in the book of Judges, it's disobedience time again, right? It's like, okay, well, we went through 50 years of kind of listening. All right, well, we got to stop doing that now. Like, why would we just continue the successful thing that's going on in our lives, right? And so it says in verse 6 that the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. And I want to point out to you guys, and we pointed this out last week, that every time Israel turns from God, it gets a little worse the next time they do so right? Last week, they chose one God to be their gods. It was Baal Barith, right? And they served him. This week, they've decided, as we get to this section of the scripture, hey, we're done following Yahweh, and we're going to serve all the gods of this region. Maybe one of them will hook us up. Maybe one of them will help us out. Like, let's just, let's just do all of them. And, and one of them might actually work for us. And yet, they refuse to serve and worship the God of their ancestors who had led them into the promised land and promised that it would go well with them if they loved and served him all their days. And so you get to verses seven and eight, and what we see is God is ticked. 
right? It says God's anger burns against Israel. And what ends up coming from that is 18 years of severe oppression from the Philistines and the Ammonites for the people of Israel. Now, up until this point, this is not unusual for Israel to have experienced um, military unrest in their, in their region, uh, um, being unable to participate in economic trade or whatever else it may be because of the oppression of other nations, although God has told them repeatedly that there's reasons for that. But up until this point when we are in Judges chapter 10, most of the oppression that had occurred was on the eastern side of the Jordan River. Now, not all of it, but a vast majority of it was on that side of the nation of Israel, meaning that the Jordan River kind of served as a barrier of protection from most of the other tribes. So if you remember anything about the book of Joshua, there there were two and a half tribes that took land on the eastern half of the Jordan River. But the remaining tribes had to then move into the Jordan with the other, with all 12 tribes and take over the remaining land that God had promised to them. And so Typically, when we're reading through the book of Judges, we're seeing that there's a common theme that the oppression that's going on is on this eastern half of the nation of Israel. But when we get to this point in Judges chapter 10, the Ammonites in particular suddenly decide that they're going to cross the Jordan River and they begin to fight and subdue Judah, Benjamin, and other parts of Ephraim as well. And if you look at verse 9, it says, Israel was severely distressed. All right, so again, Israel's rejection of God becomes more and more severe as we move through the book of Judges. The oppression that they receive becomes more and more harsh and severe. And then the way, the emotional response to what Israel is facing is more and more severe each time, right? They, it kind of like, oh, they, they were sad, they were oppressed, they cry out to the point now where it's saying that they're in severe distress. And you can probably guess what happens next because it has become a broken record for the Israelites at this point. The people cry out in their desperation because they're losing land, they're losing crops, they're unable to care for their family, their young men are dying, and so as they regularly do, they cry out to God, to Yahweh, for help. But notice how God responds to this time as opposed to the previous times. Let me read it for you. Look at verse 11 in chapter 10. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites, from the Ammonites, And from the Philistines, the Sidonians also, and the Amalekites, and the Manites, oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand. Yet, you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. And then I want you to look at this line in particular. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. Let verse 14 just sit with you for a second. 
Because there's something that we see about the character and nature of God here in Judges chapter 10 that I want to point out to you. Guys, God is not always safe. You know, the church in the West in many ways has pivoted from a model of ministry in a way of, in a way of talking and teaching about God um, that, that probably during the 18th and 19th centuries had an overemphasis on God's judgment and wrath. You know, if you study church history at all, there was a, a, a predominant model of ministry that focused heavily on judgment and wrath impending for those that were not a part of God's family, that were not uh, followers of Jesus. And that, that shift kind of started occurring in, in, in probably like the mid-1900s, maybe even a little earlier, to, the, to focusing instead on the grace of God and the mercy of God and his compassion and his mercy. And I think overall that's for the better. Right? I, I think we need to know about the good news of God and who he is and what he's done for us. But here's kind of like one of my fears, because this is what just human beings do. If you study history at all, you'll see this. They make one error, and in an attempt to correct that error, they go too far the other way. Just, and, and if you watch human history, it's just like it's a game of Pong. Right, back and forth. For those of you too young, Pong is a really, really old video game that had a white dot going back across the TV, right? It's a fascinating experience for those that first experienced it. Right? Th that's what human beings do. It's like, oh, this, this didn't go well. Let's run this way. And that creates a new set of problems and issues for them. And my fear is that we might become so focused as a church, as a people, on God's love and mercy that we forget that God is not some passive, weak God who just does whatever we ask him to do and, it, and is there and willing to be walked over and will take you back the moment you come crawling back to him. You know, God is not the boyfriend or girlfriend that you might see on a TV show who just takes back the, the loser boyfriend or who takes back the girl that constantly cheats on him is just there for him. And we all watch those shows and are like, what's wrong with this person? Like, you know, like get a backbone, right? Like say no, that guy's a loser. Don't take him back or she's going to cheat on you again, right? Like we've all been there, right? And yet I think there's a tendency for us sometimes as followers of, of Jesus to understand the grace of God that is very much readily available to all of us and not understand that God does not tolerate insolence and rebellion. And so we just kind of treat God cheaply as if he's the, the get out of jail free card whenever we need him. And God will often, for his people, correct that. And in ways that you're, you're not going to like. Or God allows Israel to sit in their own sin. Right? He says, go and cry out to the gods who you chose. You didn't want me. I had told you what walking with me was going to be like. I had promised to be your God, to be faithful you, to you, to help you, to be there for you. And you have reaped what you've sown. Let these gods save you in your time of distress. You, you didn't need me. You didn't want me. 
Go, go and figure out what it's like to, to follow these gods. L- let me just speak honestly and candidly here for a moment. And some of you guys probably are not going to like this. So just prepare yourselves to be mad at me. There are some of you in this room this morning, you're a Christian, you're a follower of God, you may have been following him for years, and you are habitually making a habit of disobeying God, running after idols in your life, and then wondering why you are miserable. And God is saying to you, go and cry out to the gods you have chosen. Let them save you. Let money save you. Let let celebrity save you. Let power save you. Let politics save you. Let drugs save you. Let sex save you. Guys, I don't wake up in the morning and and, and be like, I can't wait to be really hard and harsh. But this is a reality. You know, a, a lack of humility in Israel led them down the path that they were on. A lack of understanding that God would not tolerate this type of rebellion. And God is not different just because we're a couple thousand years post the, the period of the judges in the nation of Israel. Right? If you turn over to Galatians chapter 6, look at what the Apostle Paul told the Galatians in verse 7. He says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows that he will also reap. Meaning if you reap destruction by following after things that are not God and refuse to follow what God says to do in terms of obedience, do not be surprised when you reap things you don't like from that. Right? If you're a farmer and you walk out to the fields and you sow weeds, you shouldn't be shocked that weeds grow in the field. It's like, I don't understand. This is the cornfield. You didn't plant corn, man. Like, hello? And yet so often as a pastor, right, I'll meet people and they'll be wrestling with something. They're, they're, they're feeling miserable. They're in a season where they're struggling. And I'll ask them, well, you know, Tell me, tell me what's going on in your life. What you're doing? Well, you know, like, you know, I'm sleeping with my girlfriend, and I'm not reading my Bible, and I've, I've been I've been abusing alcohol a little bit, and I haven't been showing up to work on time. And I'm like, and you didn't think there could be a correlation between some of these things, guys. I, I, one of the things we need to remember is that when God gave the commands to Israel to, to, to follow after him, to walk after him, to obey him, he wasn't just saying that because he's on a power trip. He actually knows a thing or two about the human race because he created them. And so when God gives a command, it's, it's not only for the obedience of his people, but it's for their good. The same way or a father or a, a good father or a good mother gives rules and parameters in the lives of their children, not because they hate them or have a power trip, but because they want to love and protect their child and raise them up in the way that they would go. God does the same with us. And if we're experiencing, if you're sitting here this morning and you're like, I kind of feel like you're talking about me, Kevin. 
I would say like maybe God's trying to grab your attention. Maybe life isn't so hot right now because there needs to be some repentance in your life. Maybe you need to do exactly what Israel's going to do here because Israel does something I think probably maybe even for the first time in the book of Judges. I think they really actually repent. Right? If you look at what it does, they do they do three things. God God is super harsh with them. It's like, yeah, I'm not helping you this time. Good luck. And they respond by confessing that God, we sinned. We've sinned against you. We know it. They recognize that God is in control and that they don't get to manipulate him the way that they have tried to in the past by just being in distress. And they say to him, do what you please, but please deliver us. Right? Meaning they both know that God is sovereign and yet they still appeal to him. Right? They know that he is in control. And then the third piece of repentance, they actually obey. It says that they put away the foreign gods among them and served God. And God's response is beautiful. It says, and he became impatient over the misery of Israel. And I want to point something out that's kind of key to us here. It doesn't say that he responded because of some super faith repentance of Israel. Why does God respond here? And by the way, it was still wise for Israel to repent. But what motivates God to act? His compassion. Right? He sees the misery of Israel just like he has previously, by the way, and he moves. That's what God does. Even in disciplining his people, his heart towards them is one of compassion. You know, it's almost as if, you know, I, I understand this in some ways, maybe where some of you guys won't as a parent. So parents in here are probably going to immediately understand this. Like when you discipline and correct your kid, whatever your, your form or your method of discipline is for your child, you're usually like not pumped about having to do that. Like disciplining a child is inconvenient. It usually interrupts everyone's day and there's emotional turmoil that comes with it. And yet it's the right thing to do. And you do it because you love them. And you sense God the Father here looking out over Israel, seeing their rebellion, seeing what they're, they're standing in and telling them, Go and cry out after those other gods. I, I'm done. The only way that you're going to get this lesson finally is if I give you over to yourself and let you figure this out. And sometimes as a, sometimes as a parent, you have to do that for your own kids. You know, Jackie and I, sometimes, you know, she says I have some hippie parenting methods and maybe I do, you know? And one of those is, is like if my, if my you know, I, I've probably explained this from the stage before, but here we go. The primary job of, 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 a, of a parent that has boys is basically don't let them kill themselves because they're going to, like, they concoct all sorts of ways to seriously injure themselves, right? Have you guys ever seen that video of the little boys? They figure out that they can step on the trash can lid and it comes up and hits them in the face. And they, they're, instead of, like, stopping, they're laughing and switching, right? Like, that's what little boys do for fun. Let's find ways to injure one another and laugh at each other, right? And so, like, my kids will do stuff and... They've got lightsabers right now in our house, and I'm not going to lie, it gets a little violent sometimes, right? The dark side is strong. 
And, you know, I've tried to explain to Gideon, like, you're the older brother, man. You got to kind of, you got to kind of, if you're going to engage in lightsaber battles with your little brother who can't control the lightsaber, like, you're going to get cracked on the knuckles, and I don't want to hear it. And, you know, Jackie's a good mom and not weird like me. And so, you know, they get hurt, and they'll come out, and, like, they're all upset, and they'll come to me, and I'm like, I do not feel sorry for you. I told you, if you play this game, one of the possible outcomes of it is you get hurt. Do not come to me. You will receive zero sympathy. I'm like, and like Gideon will come to me and, you know, he's, he, you know, he's milking it and he's, <laughs> you know, and I'm like, dude, cut it out. Don't want to hear it. Right? Told you if you're going to play, don't want to hear it. Jackie, me, hey, what's going on? Are you okay? Right? But here's the reason why I do that. Right? It's not because I don't love them. I just want to, them to understand that there are consequences to actions. Right? And God is doing the same thing with them. But eventually, unlike me, God's compassion wears out. Wins out, maybe, is the better way to put it. That his compassion for them wins out, and he comes to his people to meet them. Right? Dale Ralph Davis put it this way. He could bear Israel's suffering no longer. Our hope does not rest in the sincerity of our repentance, but in the intensity of Yahweh's compassion. Right? The hero of this story that we're about to read is not Israel and their repentance, but it's God's mercy and compassion towards a wayward people. We repent like Israel because he is compassionate, because we can trust that he will relent. And Israel even asks God again to deliver this time because they know that God is compassionate and merciful above all else at the end of the day. And what we're going to see is that God is going to send a deliverer for Israel because he's compassionate. Right? If you look at verses 17 and 18, it says, Then the Ammonites were called to arms, and they encamped in Gilead. And the people of Israel came together. Notice that. Weird. They had not been getting along. They came together. And they encamped at Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said, to one, said one to another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So here they are. They're sitting. They're ready to go to battle. They're ready to stop this oppression. They're ready to throw the Ammonites back out of the land. And they're sitting there and saying, Who's going to deliver us? We, we can't do this. We're gathered together. We have a huge army, but who's going to deliver us? Meaning there's still some theological disconnect <laughs> for them at this point. And yet God is going to send a, de a deliverer by the name of Jephthah. Right? Look at chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Now Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. 
right? So here we are, we're introduced to this guy named Jephthah. He's a Gileadite, meaning he's from the, the tribe of Manasseh, right? And a warrior and a son of Gilead, but his mother's a prostitute, right? Meaning that the rest of the family didn't want him to have any part in the inheritance of Gilead, right? So his brothers drive him away. He flees to Tob. He's surrounded by worthless men, it says. And through no fault of his own, simply by being born, Jephthah is pushed out unwanted and unloved. Now think about that for a minute. Did he get to choose who his mother and father were? No. And yet his own family treats him this way. And what's beautiful, and this is one of the reasons why I love the scripture so much, God chooses to use Jephthah to deliver a group of people that wanted nothing to do with him. Right? They push him out, they force him out, and God instead chooses to use this guy to deliver them. Uh, in verses 4 through 22, I'm just going to summarize what's going on here because there's a lot happening. The Gilean elders, right, at the end of chapter 10 came together and they're like, what are we going to do? Who's going to deliver us? And so they kind of know Jephthah and they're like, hey, remember that guy we, we ran out of here? That guy actually was a really, really good military leader and commander. We should ask that guy to fight for us and lead our armies. Let's go find him to lead us in battle. And so they, get, they go to Jephthah, and Jephthah goes, why would I do that? Like, hello? I'm literally your own flesh and blood, and you said, get out of here. You, can't, you will have nothing to do with us. We don't want to have anything to do with you. Get out of here. I'm not going to help you. You're just desperate because you know I can fight. He ain't lying. Right? So... The, 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 the Gileadite leaders basically look at him and say, yeah, you're right. We, we're, we're desperate at this point. Please, please come fight for us. And he responds by saying, all right, fine. I will return, but you're going to make me your leader when I get back. If I'm going to fight for you, you're gonna actually going to name me the leader of the Gileadites. And so the people are so desperate at this point, they're like, okay, fine, we'll do it. We'll do it. You can be our leader. Just come back. And Jephthah does something next that I find kind of truly amazing. He sends a message to the Ammonites, who they're getting ready to go to war with, and he, and he just says to them, why? Why are you choosing to attack us all of a sudden? What, what, what has led you to this point? And the Ammonites respond, because you took our land. And this is where I think the story starts getting really interesting. Because Jephthah responds in a way that shows a deep level of remembrance and understanding of God's faithfulness to his people. He remembers that God was faithful to Israel back in the time of Joshua and that God had delivered them into the land. And he remembers something very specific about the land that's in dispute here that he's going to use to share with them. And he responds to them, actually, no, we didn't take any land from you. That's not true, right? In the book of Joshua, if you remember, and we studied this a, a couple summers ago, in the book of Joshua, we, God's people did not take any land from the Moabites or the Ammonites. As a matter of fact, we came out of the wilderness, and as we approached Moab and Ammon, we sent messengers to your king and said, hey, can we just pass through? 
That's all we want to do. We won't touch any of your crops. We won't stop in any of your cities. We just want to take our entire nation through the land so that we can enter into the land of Canaan and dispossess that land that God has given us. And if you remember in the book of Joshua, the Moabites and the Ammonites are like, uh-uh. You can't come through here. And so what do they do? They actually go around Moab and Ammon. They go around it, and they come to a place called Amor, where the Amorites were living. And they ask the Amorites to pass. And the king of, uh, of the Amorites, a guy by the name of Sihon, says, like, instead of responding and saying no, is like, actually, I'm just going to attack you. And so he sends his army out, and God's like, no dice. And Israel completely routes them in battle. And then God says, all right. Wasn't going to give you this, but this is yours now. This land east of the Jordan River is now yours because the Amorites would not let you pass through here and try to attack you. So God gave Israel, the victor, the land of Ammon. And so look at what happens next in verses 23 through 28 of chapter 11. Because basically what Jephthah's done here is he's preached a sermon about God's faithfulness to Israel, to the Ammonites. It's like, look, God has been faithful to us. You're, you're taking your life into your own hands here. And then look at what he says, starting in verse 23. So then the Lord, the God of Israel, dispossessed the Amorites from before his people, Israel. And are you to take possession of them? Will you not possess what Chemosh, your God, gives you to possess? Now, are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever contend against Israel? Or did he ever go out to war with them? While Israel lived in Heshbon and its villages, and in Eroer, and its villages, and in all the cities that are on the banks of the Arnon 300 years, why did you not deliver them within that time? I therefore have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. But the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent him. So, Jephthah just says, look, God gave us that. It wasn't your land. It belonged to a complete other nation in the region. Are you to take what God gave us? Right, if God gave us that land, what about Chemosh, your God? Live in what he has given you and we'll live in what God has given us. Right, if Chemosh is so faithful to you, follow him, serve him, and live in what he has given you and we will live where Yahweh has placed us and what he has given us. And he says, one of the reasons you know why you shouldn't be doing what you're doing is that the Moabites have lived next to us for years and never once claimed that we took their land. Never once have they attacked us and talked about us in this way. And then he says in verse 27, I therefore have not sinned against you and you do me wrong by waking, making war on me. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. And the Ammonites choose to attack them anyway. Even though they're clearly in the wrong from a historical perspective. Jephthah teaches us a, a, a valuable lesson here. 
Notice that Jephthah's confidence in the fact that they'll be able to withstand the oncoming conquest and war with the Ammonites is not rooted in his own ability as a warrior, but in God's promises to his people to possess the land that he had given them. You know, Israel ran after Jephthah because Jephthah was some mighty warrior of the Gileadites, right? He's like, hey, like that guy can fight. Let's go after that guy. But Jephthah gets there and says, actually, I know that we're going to win this war. I know that you're in the wrong because I know what Yahweh's done for us. As we walk through life, battling to obey God and seeking to honor him, whether it's putting sin to death, where it's seeking after God and doing the things that he doesn't. Remember that God's desire is to see you know and worship him. And the promises that he gives his children is that he's for their good and he will see through to the day of Christ Jesus the work that he's begun in you. Right, God calls us not to rely on our own power and repentance or even obedience, but instead to rest in the promises of who he is and what he's done for his people. Rest in the promise that God is doing a work in you and keep fighting to see Jesus bring that work to completion. You know, God's promises don't make Jephthah's actions null and void. But they are the reason and the motivation for why Jephthah does what he does to begin with. And what we're going to see is that God will deliver Israel from the Ammonites. Just as Jephthah knew he would. But as we finish up our time in this portion of Judges this morning, we're going to see Israel's going to find a way to rob themselves of joy in the midst of God delivering them. Something I think probably every one of us in this room, if we've been following Jesus for any length of time, can say we've done ourselves. We're going to see God use Jephthah to deliver Israel, but it won't be without mistakes. We're going to see Jephthah in his overzealousness experience real pain and heartache and disappointment. And then we're going to see a a particular tribe in Israel's pride ruin the rest and deliverance that God gives them against the Ammonites. Look at Judges chapter 11, verse 30 and 31. So Jephthah is getting ready to go to war with the Ammonites, and look at what happens. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Anybody else like perplexed by that? Right? You you have a guy who who just... Right, stood in the face of another king and said, God's going to deliver us. You've got no leg to stand on. He gave us this land. This is ours. Right? And then his zealousness, maybe even what you would consider to be overzealousness, is like, God, if you do this, like, like I'll sacrifice whatever comes out of my house. And I don't know if he had a dog or cat or some other animal that he was hoping would be the first thing that would walk out of his tent when he got back. But it certainly wasn't the only possible thing that could walk out of his house. 
right? It was stupid for Jephthah to make a vow like this because God had already promised to give them victory. And so you probably know what happens next. They defeat the Ammonites. He arrives home. And the first person to come out of the doors is his daughter, his only child. She greets him. And look at what happens. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me, for I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth. Now that the Lord has avenged you on, the, on your enemies, on the Ammonites. And what happens next is she goes and she mourns her virginity in the, in the mountains. And then scripture is silent what happens next. But I think it's silent because we probably know what happens next. He kills his daughter and offers her as a sacrifice to God. Now, let me just pause here for a second and say this. God allows this to happen, but it is not God's will that it happened. And here's what I mean by this. Jephthah's call in this entire scenario was to be used by God as a deliverer. And he gets it from the beginning that he's called to rest in God's promises and obey according to that. Him adding a vow on top of all of this and some sort of overzealous piety that he's God's chosen one and that God needs him to display some super level of faith to be obedient and do what God says he's going to do is not something that God ever asked of him or asks of any of us. As a matter of fact, if you turn over to Matthew chapter 5, Jesus talks about this, that he, he, he basically tells in the Sermon on the Mount to those that are listening to him that we're not called to add vows on top of obedience and according to God's word and his promises. Look at what he says, starting in verse 33 of Matthew chapter 5. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. What Jesus is trying to get us to understand there is if God has given us a command and we say we're going to obey him, we don't need to make some strange, bizarre vow on top of it. We need simply to trust him and obey. You know, and, and guys, I've been a Christian long enough. I know how this works, right? Especially like when you're involved in like habitual sin. It's like, God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put this sin to death. And, and, and if it goes well, I, I'm going to give you next month's salary. Right? And then it goes well. And then you're sitting there and you're like, oh, I can't afford to give my whole next month's salary to the church. Oops. Right? But then you've made this vow to God as if that was the reason why God did what you asked him for in the first place, as if he's the genie in the bottle and you can manipulate him. 
And Jephthah makes that same stupid vow because of an overzealous attitude and belief that he mattered more than he actually did. Instead of simply continuing to obey and trust in God's goodness and the promises that he had made for them. Guys, God does not need some strange level of overzealousness from his people to accomplish his mission. The church has been doing okay for the previous 2,000 years without you, and I promise you this, it'll do just fine without you after you're gone. Because as Jesus says to Peter, the gospel message is what the church of Christ is built on, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Some of you guys are like, I thought Peter was the rock. Uh Uh-uh, he's talking about the gospel there. Actually, Pete calls Peter Satan not long before that. There is, it is okay to be zealous for the things of the Lord. It is not okay to be overzealous and therefore do things that God would not call us to do. And taking a vow to kill your own daughter, taking a vow to ruin your own finances, and not steward them well, taking a vow to do other things that God would view as wicked and evil is not what God wants you to do. And it's exactly why Jesus calls it evil there in verse 37 of Matthew chapter five. And so here you have God sending Jephthah to deliver Israel, them resting in this promise, and he instead in his overzealousness robs himself and Israel of enjoying God's goodness to them. Now he's not the only one that's gonna create problems. Right, because Israel, specifically the tribe of Ephraim, does its own its own thing as well. If you get to chapter twelve, Ephraim shows up, and if if you remember back when Gideon had fought and dispossessed the Midianites, Ephraim got mad at Gideon for not including them in the fight, and you're going to see that once again. Uh, Ephraim's need to be the celebrity and the center of attention is once again going to rise to the occasion, right? Ephraim shows up and they're like, hey, why didn't you ask us to come help you fight against the Ammonites? Like, why, why didn't you come get us? As if, by the way, remember, we read earlier that Israel was gathered already, meaning that it wasn't just the tribe of Manasseh that was fighting against the Ammonites. There were other tribes there, which would lead us to believe that the other tribes knew that there was a battle going on. So where was Ephraim? But they're like, hey, why didn't, why didn't, you, why didn't you do this? Why, 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 did, why didn't you call us to help? We're, we're so mad at you. Like, you're not allowing us to obey God and to participate. And then, I love this, we're going to burn your house with fire. That escalated real quickly. And how often does pride get in the way of a work that God is trying to deliver his people from? You know, as a pastor, the Broken relationships are one of like the primary things that like just God has me help pastor people through. Just brokenness in relationships. I remember one particular uh, woman in our church years ago, she and her sister were estranged and her sister was attempting to confess and repent of some sin that had happened in their life in the past. And, you know, this woman in our church came to me and she's telling me like, my sister is trying to apologize. I just can't forgive her. And I was just like, why? 
You've seen now like 20 or 30 years of what it looks like not to walk forward in forgiveness and mercy and trying to hear and restore the relationship. What have the results of that been? Have you enjoyed that? Well, no. Then, then, why, then why are you unable to forgive her? And she couldn't give me an answer, but I can tell you what the answer was. It was pride. She believed that what her sister had done was such an affront to her and who she was that she believed that there was nothing her sister could do to repay her for the wrong that she had done to her. As if she was holy and that holiness had been stamped on by her sister. She refused to forgive and guess what happened to the relationship? It stayed broken. And this is the exact same thing that's going on here in this story with the Israelites. You know, they, they're so prideful. God needed us too. Why, why wouldn't you invite us? And clearly, by the way, he didn't, right? Because they dispossessed the Ammonites. And Jephthah responds, look, man, we were under attack. We actually did call for you and no one came. Why are you here to fight us now? We just got done dispossessing the people that were attacking us. Why would you start a civil war when like, we finally have some rest? And look at verse four of Judges chapter 12, because this is where you see the real wickedness and the pride of the Ephraimite leaders come to pass. Then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim. And the men of Gilead struck Ephraim because they had said, you are fugitives of Ephraim, you Gileadites in the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh. Now remember, I told you that the Gileadites were from the tribe of Manasseh, right? Meaning they were actually closely connected with these tribes because they were the ones that lived close to one another in the Holy Land. And what you actually see here is that there was racism towards the tribe of Gilead. Look, you guys are fugitives. You're not even real Israelites. You're not really God's people. I don't know why God even chooses to use you. You're not, you're not really a part of God's family. And they fight. And God delivers Jephthah and the Gileadites from Ephraim. And Ephraim doesn't get to enjoy the freedom that God had brought Israel from dispossessing the Ammonites, but instead turned their own racism towards them and many Ephraimites died and suffered for years to come. Right, if you continue to look in the story, what, what ends up happening is they actually stand before the brook of the Jordan. Whenever anyone from the tribe of Ephraim would try to cross the Jordan, they would stand there and they, they just asked them to say a simple word. And apparently the tribe of Ephraim had a certain dialect where they couldn't say the word properly. And the moment they say the word, they'd kill them. Because they told them, you, you can't live, you can't come through here, you can't walk through here, and they'd kill them. And their own racism was turned towards them. And you kind of sit here and you're reading the story and you're like, oh my gosh, like this went from really, really happy to really sad really quickly. Yes. Because if you think about this as a church, how beautiful is it, the salvation of what Jesus Christ has done for us and how quickly does the church mar that beauty? You know, we're not that different from Israel. You know, Dale Ralph Davis said this in his commentary on Judges, and he said, Judges paints a sad ending to the deliverance of Israel for a particular purpose. Look at what he says. He says, I think he, that's referring to the author of the book of Judges, 
wants us to see Yahweh's deliverance tinctured by human foolishness and human arrogance. It's as if even the winners can't have a clean win. We have salvation here, but a marred salvation. The writer is suggesting that if we seek a perfect salvation, we will have to look to one greater than Jephthah. Church, we do look to one greater than Jephthah. It's the entire reason we're gathered here this morning. You know, we, as humans, do exactly what Israel does. We run after things that are not God and then wonder why things don't go well with us. We run after idols. They might not have the name of Baal or Chemosh or whatever the Old Testament gods may be, but we run after idols and we serve them thinking that they're going to provide certain things for us and they never deliver on their promises. And then we cry out to God asking us to be delivered. Like asking God, please deliver us from what we've put ourselves in. And Jesus comes into human history, the unwanted savior like Jephthah, despised, rejected, not even even accepted by his own family during his earthly ministry, stood before the religious leaders of Israel, calling them to repentance, telling them the good news that the kingdom of God was at hand, and instead they took him and they crucified him. And he rose three days later. And what we learn is that that was God's good and perfect will to deliver all of us from our slavery to sin and the oppression of Satan. So here's where I want to leave us this morning. I I, I, I give us something to ponder every week when we finish looking through this. The promises of, of God is that in Christ, you're delivered. You can't add to that or take away from it. It's just a fact. The same way that the land of Armon had been given to the Israelites and God would deliver them because he had given it to them, you are adopted as a child of God if you have, by repentance and faith, trusted in Christ. That is the promise of God to those who believe. Are you distorting that deliverance, though? Maybe in overzealousness, you're trying to add works or something else to earn God's favor in the midst of just simply resting and obeying in the finished work of Christ. Or maybe stubborn pride is getting in the way. There's a refusal to repent. There's a refusal to submit to the will and the word of God and let him work. And I would just say this, God just asks us something real simple. Repent, confess, trust, and obey him and worship him. And he will be merciful to his people. For eternity, he will be merciful to his people.